For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Angela Ledgerwood and this is Lit Up, a podcast about books, writers, life and love and all things literary. Our guest today is Anne Patchett. She's the author of the novels The Patron Saint of Liars, Taft, The Magician's Assistant, Bel Canto, Run, and State of Wonder. And three books of nonfiction, Truth and Beauty, What Now, and the essay collection This is the Story of a Happy Marriage. But today we're here to talk about her latest novel, Commonwealth. I'd just like to welcome you formally to the show. Thank you. For your time. And so I had read uh, This is the Story of a Happy Marriage when it came out, but I got it back out and I kind of read it in tandem. Mm. And it felt maybe like Commonwealth is kind of a coming home book. Is it in a sense? Like that? It- it is. That's a nice way of putting it. It's funny, when my publicist first read this book, you know, months and months ago, she said, are you going to be honest with people? Are you going to, when people ask you if there's autobiography in this? And I said, well, if anyone actually read This is the Story of a Happy Marriage, they would already know it would be kind of embarrassing to lie about it. Um, but there's a way in which I feel like I've spent my whole life trying to not write this book. Mm-hmm. I've been very polite not writing this book. And so that all my books uh, that I have written are kind of uh, suppressed versions of this book. Oh, wow. I mean, Bel Canto and State of Wonder and all my books are about somebody being ripped out of one family and stuck forcibly into another one and not being able to escape it. And I just thought, well, I wonder if maybe if I just went ahead and wrote this book in a more honest way. I mean, not that it's true, but, you know, that it is, um, that I could get it out of my system. So that's the experiment. We'll see. Well, I love the to kind of go back to the, um, I think, one of the first essays in This is the Story of a Happy Marriage, when you talk about writing for Seventeen, and almost how you'd exhausted all your experiences, you know, right. until that period. And I worked at Cosmo, and I'm still Cosmo's books editor, but I remember those meetings where, you know, everyone's thinking, well, what can we glean from our childhoods that would make another story? And I wondered, yeah, it does feel like you've landed again and kind of, uh, you know, exploring what it was like to have be a, be a step child. And I think that I, like I say, I think I've been exploring it always. I think that's kind of what my theme is, but to write about what it's like to be a stepchild in a Peruvian hostage crisis instead of what it's like to be a stepchild in a house in the suburbs. (laughs) 
um, is just more freeing. I mean, it, it's, it's nice. I'm glad I did it the other way first. Mm-hmm. And now it's been really fun. I keep saying this is the book that I probably should have written when I was 25. And it was nice to write it, you know, when I was pushing 50 and into my 50s. When did you first find out you had step-siblings? Oh, well, um, my mother and stepfather had just gotten married. We had left California and moved to Tennessee, and I came home one day after school, and I was, I'm going to say, seven or eight when this happened. Um, And we were living in a sort of a sketchy neighborhood in a little tiny town outside of Nashville. And there was a boy in the kitchen when I walked in the house. And I said, get out of my house. You're in my house. And he said, get out of my house. You're in my house. And that's how we found out about each other. They had come from, my four step-siblings had come from the summer. They didn't know that their father had remarried. They didn't know there were two other kids in the house. And we didn't know that there were four other kids coming. This was before the days of child psychology, you know, where everybody got a therapist and talked it through. You just, it really was like teaching somebody to swim by tossing them into the deep end of the pool and say, hope that works out for you. Well, and I love in the book particularly, um, I guess I should say that there are two girls, Franny and Caroline, kind of in one, one family. Camp. Yeah, right. one camp, and then Holly, Cal, Albie, and Jeanette in another camp. And there's one sentence I'll just read because I loved it so much, and it reminded me of my experience with my step-siblings, who I'm incredibly close to, and I just loved it. And it's, it's, it was like that for the rest of the summer. It was like that every summer the six of them were together. Not that the days were always fun, most of them weren't, but they did things, real things, and they never got caught. (laughs) Was that, I mean, were your summers um, similar to that? Yes, and I do look back on that time and think it's amazing that we weren't killed. Um, And I've had people read this book and say, oh, they were such terrible parents. And I say they weren't terrible parents. Everybody had this childhood. Um, all of my friends lived like this. Our parents never knew where we were. They didn't know what we were doing. We were free-range chickens. They just put us out in the morning, and we came back at night. And it didn't really, nobody knew what we were doing, and it didn't make any difference what we were doing as long as we came back. Well, I exactly that. It felt like... As long as you were all together, the parents thought you'd work it out. And we did. Exactly. We're lucky. You know, it all and, and really, if I had to choose between my own chaotic, um, feral childhood or the kind of childhood that my friend's children have, I don't have children, where they have lessons and play dates and everything is scheduled and there's always somebody watching and there's always something to do I would much rather choose my own life yeah the wild yeah the the freedom of it yes because especially as a writer I think that freedom and boredom is is where art is made 
So I feel very lucky, actually. Just coming back to the Christmas story, and um, I should explain a bit that it's another essay in um, This is the Story of a Happy Marriage, but it seems to fit in beautifully with the book. And could you explain what that was about and what it was like getting this phone call from your father? I remember, you know, at Christmas time, we would all... Um, there was that sense of betraying the the parent who you weren't with, no matter which one it was. Correct. Yeah. And whether it was the one you felt comfortable with or not. But I remember my dad once, you know, on the Christmas we'd all be opening our presents and he gave me a sleeping bag and I had to go off and cry because it just felt like the most unexciting gift which I and I ended up loving this sleeping bag but I went off and cried by myself and pulled myself together and came back and told him how much I loved it you know mm. as a six-year-old and you're like it's so interesting it feels like the kids are often protecting the parents but sorry that was a long story but just no but I I used your, that story well I used to sneak downstairs days before Christmas and unwrap all my presents in the middle of the night, not because I was so curious about what I was getting, but so I could fix my face in a posture of excitement and joy when I opened this thing that I knew I wouldn't want. That is so weird. Um, And I was kind of legendary in the family that no one could surprise me and that no matter what it was, I could always figure it out. Well, it was because I unwrapped everything and rewrapped it all very carefully. Um, And my father did just get me disastrous presents. Um, I wanted roller skates one year. All the girls wore white skates. All the boys wore black skates. And my father got me black skates, and I never took them out of the box. Um, which makes me ashamed of myself, not my father. But anyway, um, one year at Christmas, somebody had written a short story for the Los Angeles Times, and it was about a little girl in a Catholic orphanage who wants to be an artist and who desperately wants a set of colored pencils and after years and years of getting packages of underwear or whatever. Um, she finally gets the pencils, but then there are gypsies that come in the night and the nuns gather up the girls and they have them give their Christmas presents away to the gypsies and how wonderful this little girl feels. And that my father called me up. I have no idea who wrote that story, what it was called, but that my father called me up and he read it to me over the phone and it made me feel understood on so many different levels because it was such a good short story and when I think of all of the presents that I got as a child and I don't remember them, that story is the one that I really do hold on to. And every year, it's not like I can read it again, but every year I stop and I think about it and I think about him and what a great gift that was. Yeah, and also, I guess, as a writer, how I loved how you talked about knowing that it might not have been true, but that I, being able to comprehend that there was something bigger. You were able to stretch the truth or bend it for a larger truth. And it was the understanding that that there was a difference between fiction and nonfiction and that it didn't really matter, which I think is a great way to think about this book, um, which is 
definitely a novel, definitely a work of fiction, definitely made up, and yet emotionally all of the resonance in this book is very true. The emotional resonance all really comes from my own life and that I don't have to keep those things in two distinct camps. One of the characters that I resonated with so much was Franny, and she's one of the two daughters, and it seems like the one time when, in the, in the novel, the two dads, you know, the stepfather and the real dad, whatever that mm-hmm. means, um, right. you know, agree that they should both be lawyers. You know, both these girls should do that. And I kind of loved Franny's kind of coming to terms with the fact that that wasn't the right thing for her. Um, why was it important to explore that kind of um, unraveling of the thing you were meant to do in, in this character? You know, I think about that really in terms of the two sisters, mm-hmm. that one sister, maybe because she was a little older when the parents got divorced, was completely susceptible to the father's wishes. Caroline, who's older, does go on and become a lawyer because she just wants to please her father so much. But because Franny was quite small when her parents split up, she doesn't have, she's not invested in the same way. And and how a parental lesson or desire put equally onto two children can hit one child so hard and just totally bounce off the other one which was what was true with me and my sister. And I think that's a, that's a great example of the emotional resonance of that tale without it necessarily being that you know, my sister and I did or didn't go to law school, which yeah. we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I loved when Franny's um, you know, cocktail waitressing and just thinks, you know, wouldn't it, oh, what is it? Um, it would wouldn't it be better if I'd been a great law student and a lousy cocktail waitress? Exactly. I remember thinking to myself when I was a waitress, I was like, you're too good at this. Yes. Too good. And my mom was like, never be too good at being a waitress. And I'm like, but I am good at it. You know, where's it going to get me? And, and that I got, um, I got 100% on my waitressing exam sort of famously. This was after I had finished graduate school and after I had been teaching in college, um, I got divorced when I was 25, and I moved home, and I got a job at a Friday's. I couldn't get a job teaching because, of course, I had walked out and burned all my bridges, and I could never get a letter of recommendation. So I got a job as a waitress, and you had to take this very long, complicated test where you had to know the ingredients in all the dishes and the composition of all the cocktails, And so I studied the way I always did, and I made a perfect score on the test. And the regional manager came and brought all the waiters and waitresses together and said, in the history of the company, I was the first person to make 100 on my my test. And I thought, oh, God, this is really bad news. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, do you still have the pin? Yes. Yes, the little wow pin. You know, it's funny, I don't. I don't still have the wow pin because I gave it to my friend Lucy Greeley, who when I told her that story, she desperately wanted the wow pin, and I gave it to her, and then we had all sorts of jokes about being pinned. Oh, I love that. 
just just because I love Franny so much, I'm just going to keep going there. And I don't want to give too much of the story away, but I think because, um, you know, in the, I think on the back cover of the book, this is mentioned, so I feel we can go Dude, there. This is actually really not a plot-driven novel. I mean, this... This is not a big story for spoilers, so go ahead. Okay, great. Okay, great. So I just thought it was funny because I feel like so many books that men write, there's a older male writer, you know, and then mm. the affair or the love kind of, you know, this kind of sexy scenario happens with a younger woman who essentially kind of wants to be a writer but isn't there yet in herself. And I understood it. It's interesting, isn't it, how those stories repeat themselves, but because they're true, they happen. Yes. Um, why did you want to explore that? I laughed because I thought, oh, my gosh, she's doing it. I love it. Well, you know, certainly I can, I can think of no end of sexy older male writers who came to the <laughs> Iowa Writers' Workshop when I was 21, and I was very plain and quiet, and none of them would have given me the time of day if I had given them my drink, they probably wouldn't have taken it. Um, but I would have happily slept with, <laughs> with all of them. <laughs> um, so, so that, I'm sure, is part of it. But, oh, it's just so many things. You know, to a large extent, it is me working out the problem of writing a novel about my family and wondering if I am betraying my family. So I am both the girl giving over the story and the writer who is taking the story. Um, I want to confront the whole idea of if you are with someone older when your parents are divorced, then everybody says you have some kind of father fetish, um, which I don't think that Franny has, but, but Franny has such a book fetish. I mean, she just loves Reading, that's her whole life. That's the only thing she really wants to do is be in a corner with a book and read. So the idea that she could be the the lover of Leo Posen, who is sort of an amalgamation of Saul Bellow and Philip Roth and John Updike um, and all the writers who I was so in love with when I was young, who wouldn't take that chance? Of, of course, Of course you would. It would just be... It would be unbelievable. I mean, there's a point where she said it's it's like sleeping with Chekhov, and who wouldn't want to sleep with Chekhov? Well, and I think there's that. I know when I was younger, the need and want to be a writer or be so close to them was so powerful that if I could get there by sleeping with one, that sounded amazing. It was almost before I was able to be the thing myself. I'd just get as close to it as I could. Right. Well, and I think that for Franny, who really genuinely does not want to be a writer, she just, it's a passionate love of literature. It seems a little purer that uh, what I'm giving to her. Mm. How did you deal with that kind of um, deciding what stories you can and can't tell? Because I was lucky enough to interview um, Adam Johnson, and he talked about stealing one of his wife's characters and making a whole short story about one of her characters. And Ouch. I, yeah, I know, I know. And he got away with it, I guess. Who knows what happened at home. But, um, I mean, this is fiction and it feels very much like that. But 
Do you think it took all these years to even decide to fictionalize some of your childhood? You know, I just thought from a very early age that it was um, it was cheap and impolite to write about your personal life. Um, and it really was writing, this is the story of a happy marriage, and, and sending it to everyone in my family and saying, is this okay? Is this upsetting? Does this bother you? And everybody said, oh, I could care less. Do whatever you want to do. Knock yourself out. That um, made me think, I'm at a point in my life that I don't want to cut myself off from anything, any of my stories, any of my experiences. And growing up as a writer, I had it in my mind that it was much more honorable and real to write strictly from imagination. But then time goes by, and like I said, you know, oh, I'm writing from imagination. I'm imagining, uh, I'm imagining a hostage crisis in Peru, which looks remarkably like two families coming together uh, and being forcibly stuck with one another. So I'm, I just realized as I got older that even though I was fictionalizing everything wildly, I kept coming back to the same story. Um, that said, there are very, very few things in this book that you could point to and say, oh, that happened, that's true. Um, and I didn't feel like I was cutting myself off from anything. It was really just kind of taking the more emotional content in a straightforward way. Yeah. Another, another part it just it was reminding on me of it now is um, in the essays when you uh, talk about your experience being a student of Grace Paley and how she taught you that writing mustn't be compartmentalized. Um, mm -hmm. It really struck me because I feel like so often writers or creative people, we try to have two lives. Like we have the life that pays the rent and that kind of thing and then we think we'll slip into this other place when we create our art and I hadn't I liked could you talk a bit about what you learned from her about how yes. your life and work are intertwined yes people love to ask everyone can writing be taught and I always believe I can teach you how to write dialogue I can teach you how to write a plot. I can teach you how to write a clear image. Um, I could do all sorts of things to technically improve almost anyone as a writer, but I cannot teach you how to have something to say. I cannot teach you how to have moral character. I cannot teach you how to be a better person or a person who cares. And that is what Grace Paley was actually teaching she did not care about our stories one bit. Um, she usually canceled class. She usually forgot your story or your homework. Um, I remember one time, oh gosh, one time she didn't have our stories in class because she had been robbed. Someone had broken into her apartment in the middle of the night and tied her to a chair and 
And then she wound up talking to this kid all night and, you know, being incredibly helpful to him. And as he was leaving her apartment, he picked up her purse that had all of our homework in it and ran out the door. And that kind of is everything you need to know. <laughs> that, that she was really trying to make us more compassionate people. And we were so frustrated because we wanted her attention and we wanted to know what she thought about our short stories. I mean, I could die just thinking of it now that I ever tried to trouble Grace Paley with a short story when she was saying, you know, you really have to take responsibility for your country's involvement in war. You really have to take responsibility for your country's involvement in poverty. You have to be responsible for your neighbor. You have to be a decent person all the time. And that's what she was teaching us. Um, that's kind of jaw-dropping. Mm, I mean, She's the only person I've ever known who, who gave a stab at that even. Yeah, it's almost like if you want to write about people who... Have to care about yeah, them. Yeah, you have to care and kind of push your own heart and being in all these directions. It, that's it. I wonder if... I mean, I guess there's the balance between your imagination and then having lived something and being able to put that into your characters. Yes. And actually the ability to form a sentence is the least of your problems. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are all sorts of people who would break that rule. That is not a universal truth. There are dreadful, dreadful people who are wonderful mm -hmm. writers. Um, but for me, that really was... The, that was the door that I needed to walk through, that I needed to be always and foremost the best person I could be if I was going to be the best writer I could be. Mm. I'm just thinking about another character in your book, Holly. And mm. um, tell me if this is giving away too much, uh, but there's <laughs> a moment when she is talking about um, her life in California. And I think it'll really resonate with some of our readers, um, I mean, listeners. Um, she was remembering seeing everything in terms of who had less than she did and who had more and who was prettier and smarter and who had the better relationship, which was you know, pretty much anyone. And that was the point where she um, discovered meditation. And... I'm wondering, did you come to meditation in your own life? Because also when I'm thinking of, um, you know, what you have these incredible discussions with your mother in real life in the essays about coming out of a divorce and also enjoying being with men without having to think you're going to marry them, which yeah. I'd love to get into because I have so many questions. I was like, oh, I even sent a text to a girlfriend last night who's going through a breakup, and I was like, I've got the book for you. It's going to be fun. <laughs> you know, it's okay. Well, and people will say to me, oh, but it's called This is the Story of a Happy Marriage. I don't want to read a book called This is the Story of a Happy Marriage, and I'm like, seriously, it's about breaking up. It's, that's what it's about. But, um, yeah, but it seems like there's a, a similarity in what Holly kind of experiences in terms of being in the present and then yes. what it seems like a discovery you may have had of that again, like being in the present with someone, not um, kind of uh, planning your entire future or judging people on whether they'll be a good partner for when you're 80. Yes, 
that's a very, very complicated question. Um, and I, I agree with what you're saying. And let me just take the business about Holly and, mm, and her youth and her longing and all of that. And, and that's a really good example of saying it's not the truth of the story, but it is the truth of the emotional content. And it's something that I see with other people, and especially with young women, this um, constant craving and comparison um, I don't have as much as they do, which is, is not in any way connected to the person who is Holly in my life. But she is in that moment standing in for something that I'm always wanting to say to young women, which is, you are alive. You are alive in this moment. It's so unbelievable that this has happened. Your good fortune just being alive in this present day where we have all sorts of freedoms that you live in this country that um that you can read that you that you have the money to buy a magazine uh, there, there are so many things that are astonishing in all of our lives if we can stop the voices that tell us we didn't get our fair share and we should have more um and and that's something that I think is easier to find later on in life. Um, and meditation is a huge help, and Buddhism is a huge help, uh, and that you realize that this constant wanting, you know, why didn't I get this, why didn't I get that, it is really just a way of pushing back your own sadness about the fact that we're going to die and we're going to suffer and the people that we love are going to suffer and they're going to die. But in this moment, in this exact moment, you know, we're we're here, we're alive. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. It's hard sometimes, though, isn't it? I just it's, sure it is. That's why you have to kind of keep at it, and you don't ever, you don't ever get there. You know, you just you hold it for a fleeting second, and then it vanishes. But it's a wonderful thing to say, and it's a wonderful thing to think about, and it made me feel great to have a character who who latches on to that, who who just decides that she is going to quell the voices in her head that make her miserable, that make her pick her thumbs, that make her chew the inside of her cheeks in her sleep uh, and grind her teeth and and really search for the peace and the joy in her life. There are some characters in Commonwealth that are reflecting on their life, and I guess they're all reflecting on their life at some point. And I know in your life you'd always imagined being the person who lived very far away from their family and missed them terribly. Um, what 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 changed then? What was it? Um, what was the circumstances that led you to come home? I was visiting my mother, um, and I went on a date with her boss. And it was a moment that I was moving. I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time, and I was getting ready to go to Los Angeles because I was working on a project out there. And I had a couple of weeks in between the move. And I came home to Nashville, and I went on a date with my mother's boss, who had just gotten divorced, and he was a nice guy, 
um, and I liked him, and and really I felt sorry for him because he was utterly flummoxed by his wife's departure and didn't know what to do with himself. And uh, there were a lot of people who were just after him. And I wound up staying because we kept going out, and I kept thinking, oh, well, I'll go to L.A. in a couple of weeks. I'll go to L.A. in a couple of months. And I got in a little tiny apartment with a six-month lease, and I, I ended up staying here. I ended up marrying him um, very, very unexpectedly and in slow motion. So I did wind up being the person who moved back home, and I took care of my grandmother along with my mother. My mother and I took care of my grandmother together for years and years and years. And um, now my mother will be 79 tomorrow, and she lives about three blocks away from us, and I see her every day. And her husband, who is her third husband, is in assisted living about a half a mile away from here, and I see him. And um, and you do just become the person who is taking care of everyone. And it's funny because it seemed so much like my sister was going to be that person. When I was away all those years, she was living in Nashville. And then with no conversation or planning, we somehow made a seamless transition, and she moved away, and I moved home, and I'm the one who's doing the work that we both thought she would be doing, <laughs> and she's very nice and apologetic about it. Um, and and all I can say is it's very gratifying, um, it's very rewarding to be the person who is close to your family and who is there to take people to the doctor and to take people to the grocery store. It is not glamorous. It's exhausting. Um, it's full of tenderness and love. Uh, my grandmother has been dead for 12 years now, just this month, and I still feel so close to her. Um, and I feel like all of those years with her were really a, a huge privilege in my life. But I think more than anything, it's a matter of just saying, you know what, this is the way the cards were dealt. This is the hand that I got. And the other hand is different, and it is not better. And if it had happened that I had moved to Vienna and um, had a beautiful life in which I came home once every three years and, and Skyped people that I loved... I, I'm sure I would look back and think this was wonderful and I wouldn't trade it for anything. And if I had had six children, I would think this is wonderful and I wouldn't trade it for anything. But this is what I got. And, and people say to me, oh, you know, gosh, your life is so glamorous. You win awards and you're a best-selling novelist. And I think, seriously? Because I have to take my stepfather to the doctor and it's impossible to get him in the car and I have to make dinner for my husband and uh, you know it, it seems to me to be the most grounded and unglamorous life I could possibly have mm -hmm. but it's all just the balance I have a friend my friend Judy who lives here in town said to me once if you were in a room with all of your friends and all the people that you knew and everybody put their troubles in the center of the room, you would get up and take your troubles back. Mm, 
And that, that isn't that beautiful? So whenever I think, oh, you know, this is hard. Why do I have to do this? I think I would take my problems over anybody else's problems any day of the week because they're mine and I love them. <laughs> now I'm wondering, did Sparky sit on your lap while you wrote Commonwealth? <laughs> it's funny because he's sitting on my lap right oh, now. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> Hi, Sparky. <laughs> he did. He, um, he did. And that's a, you know what? Sparky is a perfect example because I get up very early. My husband and I get up at 5 or 5.30 and I walk very early. So at about 10 or 10.30, Sparky wants to go outside again. Well, that's 10 or 10.30 is usually when I am really working at my very best. Mm-hmm. And so I would be writing this novel, novel, and I would be typing away. And Sparky, sit, he's a little mutt, he's a little terrier mutt, but he can sit up like a squirrel, mm-hmm. um, straight back on his back feet. And he would come over to the desk and he would sit up like a squirrel, and that is the universal sign for... I know you're in the middle of a sentence in this very important paragraph, but it's time for me to go to the bathroom. Let's go. And you know what? You stop every time, and you take your dog out, or you take your mom to the doctor, or you do what needs to be done. Um, I just I went on the website of the bookstore you have in Nashville, and I know we'll wrap up, but I'd love uh, to talk about that just for a moment, particularly yes. because I have all the dog's bios in front of me. And they're fabulous. Yeah, they're brilliant. Apparently, so Sparky is particularly good at deconstructive criticism. <laughs> <laughs> so can't he's, he's the co-owner of the store. We have five dogs. We have five dogs who work in that store. And, and they're, I always say they're very lazy, so they tend to be in the back room, you know, under the desk asleep. It's not like you walk in and you see five dogs. You usually just walk in and see one dog, but it's always a different dog. And people will come in, and they'll come in with their children. Very interesting. People who don't have dogs but have children, whose children want a dog, or who want to socialize their children to dogs, bring their children to our bookstore, and they'll come into the back and they'll say, I need a dog. And, you know, okay, Opie, go out on the floor. <laughs> and, and the kid will sit in the dog bed with this big hound and read a book to the dog and be with the dog. Um, and it's, it's fabulous, but anybody who's interested in the shop dogs should go to the website. We have something called the shop dog diaries and it talks about all of their adventures in the store. Oh, it's incredible. And just, I guess my last question, um, how has opening this independent bookstore, um, invigorated the community? I mean, to me, when I hear about it, I just, it makes me want to open my own and, you should. Yes. How has it changed your life? Um, this is the best example. If somebody comes up to me in the grocery store and they say, I love Truth and Beauty, I love Bel Canto, I say, thank you very much, and I want to get away from that person as fast as I can. Mm-hmm. Because I, I don't know really, even after all these years, kind of how to interact with praise. But if somebody comes up to me in the grocery store, as they do now, every day, and they say, I love the bookstore, and I say, I love the bookstore, too. What are you reading? Oh, I'm reading this. Oh, then you should read that. Thank you for opening the bookstore. Thank you for shopping at the bookstore. Thank you for supporting. It's like I can fully engage 
I love more than anything, more than anything, to tell people what to read, to talk about what they're reading, to have an exchange about the cultural importance of bookstore, the community importance of independent businesses and small businesses. I just love that. So all my life, I've thought of myself as someone who is really incapable of being comfortably in public with strangers. But now I am incredibly comfortable because I have a whole new field of topic. We're not talking about me. We're talking about this thing that we all love. And the fact is a bookstore only works if the community supports it. You can get your books cheaper on Amazon, but you don't have some place to go after school and you don't have some place to meet your friend after lunch and you don't have some place to go late at night when you're sick of everything and you want to either you want to be alone or you want to meet some people and talk about books. You don't have a place to take your whole family to meet an author to go to story time. And that's what it is. And the fact that the community understands that and says, I want this place in my life. Therefore, I understand that I'm going to have to pay full price for a book because I love Sissy and I love Bill and I love Andy and I love being able to go and say to those people who work there, oh, you did such a great job recommending a book last time. What should I read now? And we'll tell you. Well, what are you reading right now? Um, I am right this minute. I just started reading the new Michael Chabon mm. book called Moon Glow, which will be out in November. And I am, I always have an audio book going while I am this morning before you called, oh. I was cleaning my oven <laughs> and I was listening to, uh, Colin Toybin, Nora Webster. Oh. I've been on a real Colin Toybin audio kick and I've listened to Brooklyn and the Testament of Mary, which is read by Meryl Streep, and is the best audiobook I've ever heard in my life. And now I'm listening to Nora Webster, which is read by Fiona Shaw, and is fabulous. So um, one book when I get into bed at night, and then one book during the day as I'm going about my business that I listen to. Oh, I love that. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for your time and for writing these incredible works and for the bookstore and I guess everyone should go to the website and buy their books from you you will ship them is that right I will and what a very nice thing to say I would appreciate it if everyone would go to my bookstore website but you can also get signed copies of Commonwealth and we have this great thing we got these beautiful little leaden bags and there'll be a picture of Sparky in the in the bag with the book. So if anybody wants a signed first edition that says "Happy Birthday, Aunt Sally" on it or anything, oh, I would be glad to do is. that. And what's the website they should go to? Parnassusbooks.net. Perfect. But actually, if you forget that, just type Ann Patchett Bookstore into, or just type Ann Patchett into exactly. Google. And I'll put the link up on our website too, so everyone can go there. Terrific. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Of course. And thank you again for your time. I know everyone's going to just devour this episode and Commonwealth. Um, thanks again. Thank you so much. For more about this interview and about Lit Up in general, visit us at thelitupshow.com. 
Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Lit Up Show. And of course, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.